So we are in our second part of our series that we call Movement, um, the Book of Acts. So we're going to go through the Book of Acts now. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to talk all about 28 chapters, so I'm going to pick and choose. So I do want to ask you, if possible, you know, if, for example, like today we're going to do Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to do the first 13 verses. So if you can read the whole of chapter 2 in your own time at home before or after the service, that would be great. So stay tuned. Uh, you'll find out the passage I'm going to talk about from my Instagram. If you haven't followed me, follow me, right? So way to get more followers. Acts chapter 2. Now, um, before I start, let me just make a confession. Uh, you can start the timer, by the way. Um, let me make a confession because I'm going to offend many of you, especially if you grow up in a charismatic circle. <laughs> Today's sermon might be offensive to you because what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a work of deconstruction, okay? Because whenever we come to this passage, you already have this preconcept of, you know, prejudice on what this passage actually say. <laughs> And what I'm going to say tonight might be contradictive to what you believe all this time. You're like, oh, all this time, what have I been believing? You know, so just chill. If you want to be angry, you can be angry after the service. But at least let me, give me the next 40, 50 minutes to explain to you what I see in the passage. Is that cool? So if you, if you don't grow up in charismatic circle, this might be something new for you because usually non-charismatic avoid this tax while charismatic at least priests from this sex once a year, right? So this is a massive passage, by the way. So we're charismatic. I love this passage. But I'm going to show you what this passage actually means. So just beware. I might offend you in some way. Uh, be nice to me. Give me a chance for the next 15 minutes after you listen to me. And if you still don't get it, then you can talk to Edric after the service, okay? Not me. All right. Let's read together in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 13. 1, 2, 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We heard them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Father God, we thank you for these wonderful words that we just read, because we know your words has power. So I pray that you translate these words, Lord, that we just read and make it come alive in our heart and mind because we know your power has the power to transform life. Your word has power to transform life. So we ask you to do that, Holy Spirit, because I can only speak. I can only convince human mind, but the only one that can transform it and convince our heart is you. So do that, Holy Spirit. We are totally dependent on you. My words are limited, 
but your word and your power is unlimited. So we rely on you. Speak to us, and we're ready to hear. In the name of mighty Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. So what comes to your mind uh, when you hear the word church? For some of us, we might think of a place that we go to on Sunday, right? So if people ask you, what is a church? What comes to your mind is rock center at our time. Or maybe for some of us, when we think of a church, we think of the pastor of the church or the preacher. So when you think about a church, what is a church? You immediately think of this forever young Asian man who preached the gospel to you weekly, okay? Although those answers are not entirely wrong, they are fall short of what the Bible's definition of what a church is, okay? So the Bible definition of the word church, it actually comes from a word, the word Greek word ecclesia, okay? And the word ecclesia means um, assembly of people call out around an idea. So it's a gathering of people who are called out of their, call out of their ordinary life to live out their new belief. With another word, a church is not about a place, it's not about a building, it's not about a person. A church, in a very definition, is a movement, okay? Let me define for you what a church is, okay? The church is a movement of ordinary people with extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit united around the message of Christ, okay? Just take this definition, and we're going to keep going back to it throughout the book of Acts, okay? So this is the definition of a church. It's a movement uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit united around the message of Christ, so whenever you join a church, you're not joining a cult. You're not just joining a building. You're not joining a, to believe a person. You're actually joining to a movement. Okay? And by definition, movement moves, correct? When movement stops to move, that means it ceases to do what it's supposed to do. And that's the danger for the church in every generation. The danger is it's easy for us, for a church, to become stagnant and stop moving. And when the church stopped moving, the church has lost its function, okay? And that's why I want to take a look at the book of Acts for the rest of the year, okay? For the next four months, we're going to just jump into the book of Acts and see the very definition of church from the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts tells the story, the history of how the church came to be. But although let me give you my, my, my thing about the book of Acts, I think it's titled wrongly. Because if you look at the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of whom? The apostle, correct? But I think that's a wrong title and misleading because I don't think the apostles are the main characters of the book of Acts. See, I think the main characters of the book of Acts is actually the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. He is the main character. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of Bible um, knowledge here. You can actually separate the Bible into three different parts. The first era is actually the, in the Old Testament is God the Father, where the story is all about God the Father. And then the second era is about God the Son in the life and ministry of Jesus while He was on earth, okay? And the third era is called the New Covenant or the New Testament, and that's the era of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're living right now. We are still living in the third era, the New Covenant. This New Covenant will continue until Jesus returns for the second time, okay? So we, if we understand this, then we understand that it is very important for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is because we are living in that era, in the era of the Holy Spirit. So last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit, right? Last week, we talked about who He is and His work. But today, we're going to talk about the fulfillment of that promise. Last week, Jesus promised, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, guys. Just wait for it. And today, we see that full, uh, promise being fulfilled. In our passage today, 
we look at the day of Pentecost. Now, if you grew up in church, charismatic church, you know what the day of Pentecost is. It's the day where the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers. You with me on that? But let me give you another definition of the day of Pentecost, something that you might not think of before. The day of Pentecost is the inauguration of the new era of the Holy Spirit. Okay, with the day of Pentecost, when God poured out the Holy Spirit, that is the beginning of the new era of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit working through the apostle and the church. Now, here's why it's important. If we understand the main character of the book of Acts is Holy Spirit, then the book of Acts have a lot of relevancy to us. Because if the book of Acts is just the story of the apostle, then the moment the apostle died, well, it's the end. But if the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit, then we can expect some continuation on the work of the Holy Spirit today. Okay, some, some hint there. So, so there's much that we can learn from this book. Now, of course, there's argument, okay? There's a, a debate on how we should interpret the book of Acts. Because if you look at the book of Acts, the genre of this book actually is a historical narrative. You know, you know what a historical narrative is, right? So how do you interpret history? Because the way you interpret history is different from the way you interpret letter. Okay? There's two ways. There are two opposing views. And one is called prescriptive, and one is called descriptive. Okay, let me explain. The prescriptive cam, just like the word prescriptive, says this. You've got to take everything in the book of Acts literally. So if it happened in the book of Acts, we've got to apply it today. Okay? It's a prescription for us. We've got to follow it to the dot. Okay, here's the problem. If you take the book of Acts prescriptively, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. Let me give you just one from Acts chapter 1. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, the apostle want to replace Judas Iscariot because Judas committed suicide and they need another apostle. You know what they did? They cast lots. Okay? Is that prescription? Okay, how do you choose the next pastor? Let's say I resign. Guys, I'm sorry, I'm resigning as your pastors. And we will roll the dice to find your next pastor. Isaac, sorry, the dice has chosen you. Anyone staying in the church? Right? Okay. <laughs> no offense, but that's not the way we roll. We know, like, okay, that's not, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. We don't do that anymore. Okay, that's not the way we decide the next pastor. But on the other hand, the descriptive says this. What happened in Vegas, stay in Vegas. What happened in the book of Acts, stay in the book of Acts. It has nothing to do with us. It's what God did at that day and time, so we, it has nothing to do with us, so it's just a story. It's a wonderful story. Nothing to do with us. Okay, there's two camps. So, descriptive or prescriptive. Okay? So, here's my question for the descriptive, though. Is there any Bible verses that say that we should just take the book of Acts prescript, um, descriptively? Is there any verses that say miracles, signs, and wonder no longer apply today? Is there any hint in the Bible that said, you know, the book of Acts is just historical narrative? Don't we have the same Holy Spirit? Don't we have the same Holy Spirit who inspired the same book of Acts as he inspired the other books in the Bible? If that's the case, why is it just descriptive? It does not make any sense. You with me so far? Okay, let's take a foot. How many of you think we should interpret the book of Acts prescriptively? Raise your hand. Okay, not, not single one of you. Wow. How many of you think we should interpret the book of Acts descriptively? None of you. How many of you are waiting for me to give you the third option? Okay, you guys are smart. Okay. 
Because I, here's, here's, okay, like, here's my thing. It gotta be both. It gotta be both. It cannot, it cannot be one or the other. Because we have to take into account that there's something unique and special about the apostle that we don't have today. For example, we no longer get to write the Bible today. That's the apostle. Another one, like if you read Acts chapter 5, when people lie to the pastor, they die on the spot. Okay, if people lie to me today and they die on the spot, I'll be in jail. And then we have to roll the dice to find the next pastor, right? Isaac, you're up, right? So that's not the way we work, okay? So, but then, even though we got to take an account that there's something unique about the apostle that we cannot repeat today, at the same time, because the Holy Spirit is still the same, we're still living under the same era, we got to expect that the works that he does is still continue today. There's no, absolutely no reason to think that he no longer do what he did in the book of Acts. Okay? So that's, that's, if you want to know more about this, stay tuned for the next Titik Tamu, which is on September 22nd at 7 p.m. We're going to talk about this, basically just the arguing whether the gift will continue or the gift no longer continue. Okay? But all I want to say is this. The book of Acts teaches us a lot of things on how we should, we should act as a church. Although it's not prescriptive of the way, but it's also not only descriptive. So you got to take both. How do you do it? I'm going to walk you through it the next four months. I'm going to help you navigate through it. Okay? But let's recap what happened earlier in Acts chapter 1. Now, if you remember, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised, okay, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Okay? And, then, and, then, and the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, we're ready. We saw the resurrected Christ. We're ready to go on fire for you. We're ready to spread the gospel. And just like, cool, not yet. You're not ready. And this is what Jesus said, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this first is the mission statement of the book of Acts. Just think about it. This first is massive. So the, the, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, guys, you're going to be my witnesses, first of all, in where? Judea, Jerusalem. You know what Jerusalem is? Jerusalem is the city where they killed Jesus a couple of days ago. So the people in Jerusalem hated Christians. So now Jesus said, I'm going to send you to a city that hate you. Oh, okay. As if that's not bad enough, the second one is, I'm going to send you to Samaria. Samaria is the city where the disciples hate because there's a racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So Jesus not only tells them, I'm going to send you to a city that hate you, Jesus tells them, I'm going to send you to a city that you hate. Okay? And on top of that, I'm going to send you to the end of the earth. And the disciples will be like, what is the end of the earth? They have no clue. They do not have globe and world map as we do. So with another word, this is mission impossible. Okay? How on earth can we do this? And that's what Jesus is saying. You won't be able to do it unless you have the Holy Spirit. you got to wait for the Holy Spirit. See, the movement of God is not dependent on the power and wisdom of men, but the Holy Spirit. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, there is no movement. As the body without bread is a corpse, so the church without the Holy Spirit is dead. But when the church has the Holy Spirit, now think about it. How many people are there in Acts chapter 1? If you know your Bible trivia, how many disciples? 120. Not 12, 120. There's 120. But then, by the end of Acts chapter 2, if you know what happened, how many Christians do we have? 3,000. Okay, let, let's do the math. That is 2,500% growth in one single day. 
That's a good day for church growth. Can we agree that? That is a very good day for church growth. See, in, 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 less, than, in less than few years, they managed to shake the Roman Empire so much to the point in less than 300 years, pretty much all Roman Empire is influenced by Christianity already. What happened? Let me tell you what happened. The day of Pentecost happened. Jesus fulfilled his promise, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on these 120 disciples, and the rest is history, okay? By the way, before I, before I go forward, let me just say this, okay? There's only one Pentecost. Okay, I'll stop there, because I might get in trouble if I say more. Okay, there are three things that we can see from this passage. The manifestation, the reversal, and the wonder. Okay, look at the first one, the manifestation. Verse 1 to 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Okay, now let me admit. I mean, these verses are exciting. Mighty wind, oh, tongues of fire, wow. Like, because these verses are amazing, a lot of time we forget what is the context of this verse. I mean, just think about it. Imagine if you see a tongue of fire in the person, on top of the person sitting next to you. What will you do? You'll try to blow it off, right? But you can't because you're wearing a mask and it's not hygienic. But that's the kind of excitement that we have. See, this is exciting first to the point that we, wow, exciting fire, wind, and we neglect the context. Because I think Luke gives us a clear definition, clear context when he said, when the day of Pentecost arrived. So the day of Pentecost is something that the Jews celebrate every year. So it's not something new for them. Okay? They call it the festival of harvest. Okay, what is the festival of harvest? This festival of harvest is the day where the Jews bring the first fruit of their crops as a thanksgiving to God. For example, so let's say you have a strawberry farm. farm. Okay? In the Feast of Harvest, you will bring the first harvest of that season as an offering to God and trust God with the rest of the harvest. So the first harvest also gives you this, a small foretaste of the rest of the harvest. So if the strawberry in the first fruit, in the first harvest is sweet, they will tell you that the rest of the harvest will have a sweet strawberry. You with me so far? And that is exactly the context where God gave the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is said, Paul said to be what? The first fruit. So with another word, the same way, in the, when God poured out the Holy Spirit, God is actually giving us a foretaste of what is to come. God is in the process of restoring what was broken. And the day of full harvest is coming when Jesus returns. But until that day, you and I get the foretaste of that future. Okay, that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, okay? But look at what happened, okay? This is really cool. First of all, there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind, okay? It's not an actually wind. It's a sound of a wind. In the Old Testament, a wind used to signify new creation. The word wind, breath, and spirit came from the same Hebrew word, ruach. And there are tongues of fire. In the Old Testament, again, fire is used to signify two things, either the judgment of God or the presence of God. And in this case, it is the presence of God. So it's what's happening here. So prior to this experience, Jesus already promised, guys, you guys are going to have the Holy Spirit and He will be with you. 
So they have the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, but they have yet to experience Holy Spirit. You with me on that? So, but now when the Holy Spirit comes, it's manifested in such a way that they not only have cognitive intellectual knowledge of the Holy Spirit, they actually get to experience the Holy Spirit in the wind and the fire in that room. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit is not just something they know, but something they experience. Okay, and his was strange. How many people are filled with the Holy Spirit? That's not a tricky question. All. Every single person in the room, according to Luke, all 120 have the tongue of fire on their head. This is weird. Because in the Old Testament, that's not how it works. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God only dwells on specific persons or specific places. So if you want to have access to the Spirit of God, the presence of God, you got to go to that place, the Old Testament. But then, at the end of the Old Testament, there's a prophecy from Joel that says this, one day will come where God will pour out His Spirit on all people. Everybody will have the Spirit of God. And that is what's happening. The fulfillment of the promise, God pour out His Spirit on all people. Every believer now have the Holy Spirit. Not just specific few people. And this is a game changer. Let me tell you why. Okay, this is where I'm going to critique um, a lot of teaching on this part. My friend, this is not a second baptism. You guys know what second baptism is? Okay, second baptism says this. Well, there's a difference between Christian and Christian who are filled with the Spirit. So they basically argue you can be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit at the same time. So you got to have second baptism. Okay, it's good that you're baptized as a Christian, but you got to have the second baptism, the baptism of fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you why this is wrong, okay? Because the rest of New Testament disagree with that. The rest of New Testament tell us that you cannot become a Christian without the Holy Spirit working in you. It is impossible to be Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. That's the rest of the New Testament. So then the question, then what do we do with this verse? Because this verse teaches us, tell us, the disciple already become a believer. They already follow Christ, but then they are baptized with the Holy Spirit long after they become a believer. So a lot of people say this, well, just like that, you got to have second baptism. Let me tell you why it's wrong. The book of Acts is a transition between the old era and the new era. It is a transition between the time of Jesus and the time of Holy Spirit. So for the disciples who live between these two eras, they got to know. Because they previously they lived under Jesus, the Holy Spirit has yet to be poured out. And now they live in the era of the Holy Spirit. How do they know that they have the Holy Spirit? There's a transition of era, and in that transition of era, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit to show to us and all of us, the time has started. The Holy Spirit era has begun. Inauguration of the Holy Spirit. That is what the day of Pentecost is. You with me so far? So that's the reason. Okay? I'm some of you are like, okay, yes, that's a lot of theory. What use is it to me? Let me tell you, it is extremely important if you get this. Why? What does it mean then for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means this. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not just limited to one or two people, but to every single Christian, it means this. Inside of every single believer, there is living God inside of you. And that's, that changed the game. 
Because a lot of time what we think about ourselves is, you know, we're nobody. Well, we can't really make any changes. It's up to you. You're sure the pastor. But in the New Testament, hold on a second, every single Christian have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out all believers. And God is not just telling us something that He will do in the future, but by giving us the Holy Spirit, we have the foretaste of that future right now, today in our life. Let me put it this way. I love the way Rankin Wilborn put it. I used this illustration a couple of times already. Imagine, imagine if you grew up with a parent who's really mean and always speak bad about you. They think of you as a disappointment. You always disappoint them. You never make them happy. But then one day, as you clean the garage, you find a dusty lock cabinet, and you pick the lock and open the cabinet and discover the paper that proof you have been adopted abducted as baby. The people that you thought are your parents are not your parents. They are criminals. And you discover that your real mom is the queen of England and your dad is a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a worldwide known model. What would you say to yourself? Everything about you changes. Even know that? So, oh, now it makes sense. Now I realize why I'm so brilliante. I realize now why I'm so good-looking. I know I don't get it from this bunch of people who call them my parents. Because now you realize you're extraordinary. You're different. And my friend, that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in you. Because a lot of them in love, we walk with our heads down thinking that we're a disappointment, we're nobody, we can't contribute to the mission of God. At the end of the day, I'm just a girl, 35-years-old girl, 25-years-old girl who live in a suburb that no one knows. While God say, hold on a second, you have the very person of God inside of you. And if you understand this, you might walk into the garage with your heads down, but when you understand that there's living God inside of you, you walk out of that garage skipping, my friend. Because you, you the way you see everything changes. You realize that you have God, the living God inside of you. Now everything, everything that you do have a new perspective you actually can make a difference. You can actually make a change because you have the very God inside of you. But at the same time, it gives us balance. Remember, the Holy Spirit is just a foretaste. So it gives us incredible balance. In one side, we have this tremendous hope that we can make a difference. But on the other side, we do not become over-triumphant. We do not fall into the trick of prosperity gospel which tell us you've got to live your best life now because we know the best is yet to come. What we experience right now is just a foretaste of what is to come. And yet in that season, in that era, you and I can make a difference because we have the spirit of the living God inside of us. Second one, okay? That's the first one. The second one, and this is the part where I'm going to get into a lot of trouble. The reversal. First 4 and first 11. To first 11. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? 
native language. Parthians and Medans and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. But Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we heard them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Can you tell that I've been practicing all these nations? Okay. This is the part that I'm going to get into trouble with some charismatic circle, though. I mean, if you grew up in charismatic circle, um, the Sunday of Pentecost was the one Sunday where you feel very nervous about coming to church, especially if you do not speak in tongue. Right? Because why? Okay, if you're not familiar with the term speaking in tongue, it means this. It is when Christians speak in a language that does not sound like any language you know. You know why you're nervous? Because you knew what was coming. Okay, the preacher is going to preach on this text, and they're going to say this. Okay, they're going to, the pastor is going to look at you and say, unless you speak in tongue, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. The sign that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to speak in tongue. So if you do not speak in tongue, that means you do not have the Holy Spirit. So what is one going to do? After the service line up, we're going to pray for you. Okay? So you did. Okay? You, you tried. And you, you actually, uh, okay, let me, let me do this. Uh, let me be prayed for. And you walk up to the front, and then the pastor pray for you, fill with the Holy Spirit, fill, fire. And, and you try it, and nothing happened. And you thought, oh, maybe the pastor is not that good enough. Maybe I go to better pastor. And then the next year or the year after, you keep trying with different pastors. And for whatever reason, it's still not working. You're still not able, some of you are still not able to speak in tongue. And now you feel like you are an inferior Christian because you do not speak in tongue. Because you only have the Holy Spirit if you speak in tongue, right? That's what they say. So what did you do? Let me tell you what you do. Fake it till you make it. And okay, you start looking, okay, that's, that's how they speak in tongue. Okay, let me just do that, okay? So you try to follow the word. Okay, ba 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 ba, ka 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 ka, kurarara. Okay, okay, let me try that. And then so, is a wonder that there's a reason why if you go to these churches, their tongue sounds awfully similar to one another. Like if you go to Indonesian church, right? In Indonesian, you got kurarara, ba 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 ba, shikaraba, right? But if you go to African church, it's different. Hamshaka, 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 like... Why? Okay, maybe a bit too much. Is that too much, Sam? Okay, move on. This is not consistent with the teaching of New Testament. Because the New Testament teaches that it's impossible for you to be saved without the Holy Spirit. But it also tells you that speaking in tongue is not equivalent to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongue is not the sign of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, okay? He described that. But here's my conviction, okay? Because when people use this text, no, they said, no, every, all 120 of them speak in tongue in Acts chapter 2. Let me tell you, the tongue in Acts chapter 2 is not the same as speaking in tongue in 1 Corinthians 14. Very different, okay? I'm going to show you how it's very different. In 1 Corinthians 14, the speak in tongue as we know it, Paul says this, is given for the edification of the church, it is a language directed to God, and it needs to be interpreted. But in Acts chapter 2, it's totally different. In Acts chapter 2, it's a language given for the good of the people, not God, for, not for the church, for the people. No one needs to translate it, and it's directed to men. The nature of the gift is very, very different. So what happened in Acts chapter 2 is like this. It's like me in Greek. 
I have love-hate relationship with the Greek. Uh, I took it for two semesters. I memorized vocabulary every single week. And I cried a lot in library because of it, okay? Some of you know the story. I cried because of Greek. Greek can make someone cry. Let me tell you. It's, it's a language that's extremely hard. But let's say one day I'm invited to Greece, okay? I'm invited to preach at a, church, a local church in Greece. And the moment I open my mouth, suddenly I begin to speak fluent Greek without no accent whatsoever. And people are like, wow, I didn't know that you're Asian Greek. And that's exactly what happened in this text because now everybody listening, whoa, hold on a second. How come you speak my language? No accent whatsoever, perfectly. Okay, now here's what it means, okay? Let me tell you then what it means. It's beautiful, don't miss this. So what is the speaking in tongue in Acts chapter 2? What is the purpose of it? Let me tell you, it's beautiful. When Luke writes this passage, he does not make mistake when he lists out all these different countries and <laughs> tribes that we I skip. I'm not going to read it again. Okay, you guys remember all these Libyans, Cretans, all this stuff. Why does he list all these countries? It seems redundant, right? What's the point? Oh, hold on a second. Luke is making one extremely important point. Here's what happened. Many, many years ago, thousands of years before the day of Pentecost, everyone on earth used to speak the same language. Everybody's united. They have the same language. But yet, because of that, they become prideful, and they created this tower that ascended to heaven called Tower of Babel. And when God saw that, God said, this is not good. So God came down, and God confused their language as a punishment, as judgment. So from that moment, we have multiple languages. So people began to spread to different parts of the earth. So the confusion of language is the judgment of sin. But do you know what happened in this story? When the Holy Spirit is poured out, suddenly what was divided before become one again. So now there's a language that unites every one of them, okay? On the day of Pentecost, the reversal happened. The Holy Spirit descend on earth. Many nations come together and the language is united. And instead of division, the Holy Spirit brings unity that transcends racial and linguistic barrier. What does it mean then for us? Here's what it means. It means for us as Christians, what's important about us is no longer about our nationality, language, race but Christ. Because now we are united by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and you know, the last couple of months, we see this problem of racism is rampaging everyone, right? All around us. Black Lives Matter. Okay, we see that. But yet what the Holy Spirit does is it gives us a new identity that unites every tribe, nation, and tongue under Christ. And that is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. So it, here's what it means. I don't have to agree with everything with you. I don't have to agree on everything with you. You and I, we can, be dis- we can have disagreement. Yet at the same time, our unity with one another is far stronger than our differences. My unity and your unity, my unity with you as a Christian is far greater than a unity that identical twin who does not, Christ, who does not know Christ will have. It means that right now, I have a lot more common with a widow in Africa who is also a believer than I do with people of the same race, same school, same age, who is not a believer. I'm about it this way. 
I have my own style of preaching. If you've been to RSF for a while, you can guess it. How? It begins with reading the scripture, and then pray, introduction, and an exposure sermon with three or four points, illustration, point you to Jesus, application, done. Right? That's how I preach. And then, of course, the way you respond is you, hmm, hmm. And I'll probably, sometimes you, you're nice enough to say, give me the courtesy amen, right? Sometimes some of you are kind enough to give me that, okay? And that's the way we roll, and that's fine, okay? That's totally fine. But if you go to African-American church, oh, man, it's chaotic, okay? Just give it a try sometime, okay? When you go to African-American church, they don't remain silent. Or no, when people listen to the word, they stand and say, preach on, pastor, Come on, I feel the fire on you. Oh, yes, I'm preaching. Come on, let me. Yes! Right? It's, it's chaotic. And, and it's beautiful, but it's chaotic. If I try to do that in RSI, come on, guys, there's a fire of God in this place. And then there's an organ in the background, like, I feel the fire. And, okay, stop. That's not going to work. Because we are people of different culture. We, ha- we do things differently. But here's what... Um, Luke's telling us, by giving us the Holy Spirit, that means this, right now, even though I'm very different from my African-American brothers, yet I am so united with them to the point that my unity with my African-American brothers are far greater than my unity with other Indonesians who are not not sharing the same faith as me. That is what the Holy Spirit gives to us. So your identity, my friend, right now, is first and foremost Christian. You might be Indonesian, but you're Indonesian second, Christian first. You might be Australian, but you're Australian second, second, Christian first. So now we have this beautiful unity where the Holy Spirit unites us. We have so much more in common with our African-American brothers than we do with Indonesian or Australian who, do, who are not Christian. And that's what the Holy Spirit gives us. And that is the meaning behind speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2. You with me so far? But look at the next one. It's beautiful. The wonder. Verse 12 and verse 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So in the light of this unexplainable event, there are two responses. First, people are amazed. Wow, what is this? It's wonderful. But the second response, mockery. It tells us something about signs and wonders. Signs and wonders by itself are not self-authenticating. Signs and wonders are simply pointers towards something else. You can see it here. So these people, they experience the same wonders, and yet they responded very differently. It tells us something about miracles. Okay? Miracles by itself does not make you a believer. It is very possible for you to experience miracles and never believe in Christ because miracles are simply a pointer. Okay? More of this on the next part, on part three. But look at what Luke says in, in verse 11. This is what beautiful. We hear them telling in our own tongues. What? The mighty works of God. I love this. So when the disciples, they perform signs and wonders, this unexplainable event, you know what they say? They don't say this. Guys, look at this amazing sign and wonder. Look at this brand new language. Look what I can accomplish. No, they don't say that. You know what they say? Look at the mighty works of God. 
Because that's the purpose of sign and wonder. The purpose of sign and wonder is pointing you to the mighty work of God. And that phrase, mighty work of God, my friend, means two things. Okay? In the Old Testament, it means when God saved the people of God out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. That's the mighty work of God they talk about. But for us in the New Testament, it's about the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus has accomplished our salvation. And that is the purpose of sign and wonder. The sign and wonder are not given for the purpose of showing off God's power. Sign and wonder are given for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel. Here's why I'm convinced that's the meaning, okay? Because there's another meaning to the day of Pentecost. For the Jew, the day of Pentecost is actually an anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So, when, what happened when Moses received the law at Mount Sinai? Okay, this is what happened. Okay, it's very similar to Acts chapter 2. Okay? When Moses received the law at Mount Sinai, at the day of Pentecost, it began with the manifestation of the presence of God. So God came down and manifested himself in Mount Sinai through fire, wind, and quake. And when people saw that, people were afraid. Oh, no, 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 Moses, we, we come near the mountain, we will die. So Moses, why don't you go up to the mountain on our behalf? So Moses went up to the mountain to intercede between God and his people. And at the top of the mountain, Moses received the Ten Commandments, the law of God. But as soon as Moses received the law of God, do you know what happened? The Israelites break the commandment of God. They created this uh, golden bull and they worshiped it. They committed adultery. And because of that, the wrath of God came down and killed many people. And you know how many people died? 3,000 people died at the day of Pentecost at Mount Sinai. The wrath of God is poured out because of people's rebellion and sin. But on the day of Pentecost, here's what happened. God manifested himself once again. The Holy Spirit came down in a form of sound of mighty wind and tongues of fire. And when that happened, it does not make people afraid. It created joy inside of them. And Christ, Christ went up to be the mediator between God and the people of God. And when Christ came, went up, the Holy Spirit poured out on all believers. And now the law of God is no longer written on a stone, but the law of God is written on our heart. And the grace of God was poured out on that day. And you know how many people got saved? 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. Their great reversal happened. Do you know what happened? How is that possible? Because of the mighty works of God. Because of the gospel. Because that is what Jesus done. Jesus took the fire of God's wrath so that you and I can have the fire of God's spirit. At the cross, Jesus absorbed every single punishment of sin upon himself. He died for my sin, for my mistake, for your mistake. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and Jesus cried out this beautiful statement. Tetelastai. It is finished. And the moment Jesus said it finished, he died. And the moment he died, the earthquake. And when the earthquake, the thing that separated the presence of God from the people of God, the veil was torn apart. And from that day forward, there's nothing that separates us from the presence of God. Because right now, the presence of God is no longer the place that you go to, but you and I are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit come and live inside of us. And that is the meaning of Pentecost. That is the true Pentecost. Let me close with this. 
How many of you ever get drunk? Don't rest your hand. What happened when you're drunk? Let me tell you what happened when I get drunk. Once. You become fearless, right? You lost control of your body. You do things that you normally wouldn't do. Am I right? Here's my question. Why are you fearless? You're fearless because you can't think straight. It is a stupid kind of fearlessness. But look what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Interestingly, Paul contrasted being drunk with wine with being filled with the Spirit. Why? Because when you're filled with the Spirit, my friend, you also become fearless. But that is not the, the dumb kind of fearlessness. This is not a stupid kind of fearlessness. See, when you're drunk with wine, you become fearless because you lost sense of reality. But when you are filled with the Spirit, you become fearless because you have greater awareness of reality. It is intelligent kind of fearlessness because you are fearless because you know Christ, the Holy Spirit, is living inside of you. You know that you are the child of God and He is living in you and that's what makes you fearless. And that's the reason that you and I are powered, are clothed with the power from on high. It is power for the sake of the gospel. You and I become absolutely fearless. That is the Pentecostal power. The Pentecostal power is the power to be witnesses of Christ and play part in the gospel movement wherever you are. And I close with this. My last closing. Truly closing. Imagine for me, with me one second. Imagine if you truly believe this. Imagine if you truly believe that there is the Holy God living inside of you right now. What would you do? It takes one day, one day for 120 disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit to grow to 3,000 disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit. One day. And right now, let's say every one of you here who listen to this sermon online or in person, you believe, truly believe that there is the Holy Spirit inside of you. What do you think will happen to this church? What do you think will happen to the city of Sydney? You and I have the power to make difference. And that's what the church is. It's a movement. And here's what the good news for you and me. See, God does not need the smartest and the most resourceful people for Him to turn the city upside down. The gospel movement involves ordinary people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all it takes. What you and I, what this city needs is not smart people. It's not a rich people. What this city needs is someone who believes that there is the power of God living inside of them, empowering them to be witnesses of Christ. And when you do, let me tell you, my friend, you will see in the rest of the book of Acts, there will be miracles, signs, wonders accompanying you, not because of you, but for the purpose of the gospel. And the good news is the power 
is already yours. All you have to do is move. Let's pray. God, I ask. I ask you do this in our heart. Even in my heart. I can see a lot of spaces in my heart where I have yet to rest and trust in your power. Sometimes I feel shy. Sometimes I feel intimidated to be your witness. And I forgot, I forgot the fact that there's a living God inside of me. So I pray that you lit up that fire again in my heart and also the heart of your people in this place, the heart of church, Rock Sydney Church. Burn the fire once again, Holy Spirit. Remind us what is the power that you have given us, what is the Pentecostal power. I pray that we be able to carry that wherever we are, Lord. For the time that we think too small of you, forgive us. For the time that we have a small dream, small ambition for our city, forgive us. Help us to give up, give up our own dreams and ambition and embrace your dream and your ambition for the city. Use us as individuals and use us as church to be part of the gospel movement. And Holy Spirit, do that for us. Remind us once again who you are in our life. And I pray that tomorrow we will make the move. And we ask this in the name of beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.